Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Over the course of the presidential campaign, President-elect Donald Trump was quick to make elaborate promises to working-class Americans, promising to do away with Washington's business as usual, usher in an era of tough deal-making, and revive the country's moribund manufacturing sector. Three weeks after the election, Trump has earned himself something of a win in the area with the claim to having saved a thousand jobs at Carrier from going to Mexico. But how different from the status quo was this Carrier deal? Joining us to walk through it is Scott Paul, the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Meanwhile, while we're sorting through whether or not Trump's first foray into working class populism is sustainable or not, we're going to be taking a look at how he's proceeding in his efforts to, as he says, drain the swamp in Washington. It's a noble goal, to be sure, but it's hard to look at the way his cabinet is shaping up and see a lot of hope. What's so different about Trump's coterie of billionaires that makes them more apt to help the working poor than everyone else's coterie of billionaires? We'll try to sort that out. Finally, ever since the election ended, the media has been having to wrestle with an uncertain future in which they'll have to report on a president who's gone to great lengths to attack press freedom while simultaneously drowning the media in shiny Twitter distractions and outright deception. All coming at the same time that news organizations are contending with an influx of fake news that has dominated the information landscape. So what is to be done? Joining us to figure it out is reporter and columnist Emma Roller. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Paul Blumenthal, Zach Carter, and Arthur Delaney. Here's what happened first. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened. Your weekly dispatch from the fudge tunnel that is Washington, D.C., as we, like Andrew Dufresne, attempt to crawl our way out of it. My name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. We have a very good show for you today, and we're going to kick things off right now by welcoming back Zach Carter. Oh, man. It is really great to return after my two-week absence, which all of you fine listeners noticed the last two weeks, right? We kept talking about it. Arthur uh, surmised that you had died. No, on numerous no. occasions. I did leave the country, though. It just seemed like the right time to sort of leave the country. Yeah. We're also joined by our money and politics guru, Paul Blumenthal. Hello, Jason. Hi. Zach. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, man. It's great to Good have to you. you yeah, of course. And uh, uh, the, the fact that we have you on indicates that we're going to be talking about money and corruption. So let's begin with uh, the incoming Trump administration, uh, which had talked about draining the swamp and it talked about uh well talked a pretty good game about populist economics and uh what is he shaping up as a cabinet filled with wall street douchebags and billionaire (laughs) addled billionaire donors who've never run anything particularly successfully well but they funded campaigns and so here we are 
I hope everyone who voted for Trump is satisfied with that. I would, I would uh, tweak you there a little bit. Good, um, good. I'm, a, a lot I'm of these guys the who he, who's appointing, uh, he's named Steve Mnuchin, who's a second generation Goldman Sachs partner who then ran a hedge fund and then financed lots of successful Hollywood movies like Avatar. So he's totally what you're thinking, you know, the, the, the cultural sort of link to the white working class. He is definitely the guy at the top of the list there. Um, yeah, easily. But he and Wilbur Ross, who has been named to the Commerce Department, um, they actually have made quite a bit of money doing things. And I think um, it, it's not that they're not successful at making money. It's that they represent um, the, the existing status quo of doing things to make money that have either zero implications for the lives of working people or are actively destructive uh, on their behalf. Steve uh, Mnuchin, in particular, is really famous for taking over IndyMac Bank after it failed. Um, so... It's not hard to make a lot of money when you take over a failed bank because the federal government wipes out all the bad assets for you. So you buy the bank, then it's in good shape, and then you sell it later. You make a lot of money. His bank, however, had a whole lot of issues with um, redlining, which is not lending to black people, and uh, also foreclosing on old people um, by being really aggressive with reverse mortgages. So um, is all that stuff Steve Mnuchin's fault? Well, maybe not every single instance, but uh, this is not a guy who has a record of you know, really sticking it to the man on behalf of the working guy. He is the man. Um, and he's really rich, just like Donald Trump. Yeah. Paul, when you see this shaping up, what do you think? Do you think, because I know you would love to see the swamp drained. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, I think the both sides have a different view of what the swamp is. Um, I mean, I think when, when we look at, you know, <laughs> populist figures throughout history, it kind of seems like the people who support them would much rather they, they don't really care if someone's corrupt or anything like that. You know, they're looking for somebody to uh, fill the swamp with people who will help them. And um, maybe that's what's happening here. We don't know. It's only been three weeks since we woke up in this completely different reality. Um, and now we have to deal with the fact that, you know, Donald Trump ran on all these promises. His closing ad in the campaign was this sort of protocols of the elders of Goldman Sachs, where he had, you know, Yikes, yeah. Lloyd Blankfein and Janet Yellen and George Soros as the sort of evil Jewish globalist elites who he was going to defeat. And now he's appointing, you know, a former Goldman Sachs banker, hedge fund um, elite like uh, Wilbur Ross. I mean, Steve Mnuchin also worked with George Soros in the past. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen a lot of crying Pepe's on Twitter. Uh, who are sort of like, what is going on? How is he? Why is he appointing these Jew bankers into his administration? Um, so I think it will be interesting to see uh, how people actually react to this. Do they see it as the swamp helping them now instead of Obama's swamp helping people that they don't don't like or that are different from them? Um, or do they actually see this as, you know, no change at all? Um It'll be interesting to see play out. I think, you know, Mnuchin and Ross have already sort of uh, said conflicting statements about Trump's trade policy mm -hmm. that he ran on. And, and so, uh, you know, we're really going <laughs> to we're really in the dark here, I think. You know, what I think what ties all of these appointments together, whether it's Wilbur Ross, Steve Mnuchin, uh, Todd Ricketts, who's appointed deputy commerce secretary, is that they're all big campaign donors. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a and there's a long history of, of that, particularly at the Commerce Department, which mm -hmm. um, the Commerce Department, the history of that place is kind of interesting. It was invented basically because uh, the business community, meaning people who run businesses, were concerned that labor had too much influence over the federal government because there was a Department of Labor. So so executives got their own special little cabinet office, the Department of Commerce. And usually 
the Department of Commerce is just a place for somebody who's super rich to go and walk around and glad hand with other super rich people. Penny Pritzker, who is the Commerce Secretary for President Obama. Big uh, donor. Huge donor. Yeah. Billionaire. Yeah, billionaire. Inherited wealth billionaire, just famous for doing nothing except being rich. Um, it was really clear that the Commerce seat just sort of went to a big donor there, um, which, you know, is that there is a tradition there, but... If you're if you're running on draining the swamp, then you're supposed to drain the swamp, not just you know throw throw one of your guys into it instead of the Democrats guy. The um, the the interesting thing to me about all of this is that we've come through this sort of election cycle where populism took a center stage, uh, and one of the things that I think if you could say was laudable about Donald Trump. And, it's hard to pick things that are that are that are that are that are laudable, but he expressed a lot of skepticism about Wall Street on the stump, and I think it came from the fact that he sort of like positioned himself as a class trader uh, for the purposes of winning the votes of working class people, um, and he specifically talked about hedge fund guys being, you know, sort of a repulsive, predatory presence right. in the financial sector because they essentially really didn't do anything productive with their money. I, I'm not saying that Trump did productive stuff with his money, but he could at least claim to have, like, buildings in his name. Uh, whereas what hedge funders do is all sort of, you know, esoteric, ephemeral uh, banking and betting. Um, and now we see that, I don't know, the skepticism he expressed obviously wasn't too deeply felt. Right. He went after Hillary Clinton over and over again for taking all this money from hedge fund donors, which she did. Uh, and, you know, Steve Mnuchin's a hedge fund operator. He just is. Wilbur Ross is a private equity titan. He, you know, the line between a private equity firm and a hedge fund is pretty, pretty thin. He does some of both, um, you know, and, and these are guys who, I mean, Wilbur Ross has uh, a long history with uh, with steel company takeovers, in fact. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of Trump's appeal was to people from manufacturing jobs. He says, I'm going to get your manufacturing jobs back with... Uh, with well, there are steel trade. people who do see Wilbur Ross as sort of a hero. Uh, well, he's he's a tricky guy. I mean, his his plan, what, what he's done with steel takeovers is basically what the, uh, you know, the way he made money in steel was to buy a company that's in distress, rip up all the union contracts so the workers get paid less and then sell the company. Uh, you know, if, if that's your plan for saving manufacturing, everybody gets a, a big pay cut. Uh, I think there are going to be a lot of workers who are pretty pissed off about the new solutions here. Uh, and we, we just don't know what it's what what the policy things are going to be like, because, frankly, his, his on the stump, I think Trump did a very good job connecting with working people and making them feel like he was on their side. His policy proposals were just all over the place, and frankly, they were all mostly crazy and wouldn't were not internally consistent, but certainly weren't consistent with each other. So we just have no freaking clue what he, how he's going to govern. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, there, when, when I left the country, there was some debate over whether Democrats should work with Donald Trump on an infrastructure bill or not. And I, I don't want to really take sides in that that debate. But one thing to think about for Trump's administration, if he does deliver economic gains for working people, he will stand a really good shot at getting reelected in four years because his administration is going to be full of scandals. I don't think people who voted for him this time around were like confused about, you know, this guy being problematic in a lot of ways. Um, but if he delivers for working people, you know, if there's a big infrastructure bill that puts a whole lot of people to work, uh, that is going to be a really powerful message in four years. Well, we talked about that on the last podcast and we're skeptical about whether this particular infrastructure bill was that kind of infrastructure bill. But mm. You're right. You're right about that. But one thing, uh, you know, Paul, people in government 
have always had this kind of problem with the trust us we're experts crowd. You know, we saw coming out of a massive financial crisis where really a whole lot of people should have been like put into the wilderness as dis- discredited loons. Uh, the, the Obama administration pretty much welcomed them all back. Um, and there's this sort of prevailing attitude that, well, the people who fucked it up are really the only people who can put it back together again. And so we've always kind of missed out on this opportunity, maybe have it in presidential administration that does things a different way. They say, you know what? These people aren't going to have a seat at the table. We're going to find some other people who are smart, who, who've been like stranded in the wilderness for, for such a long amount of time. And, you know, I, I feel like if you forgive Trump a lot of what he said and did on the campaign trail, you know, he did sort of promise to bring in a new and invigorated group of people to the stodgy beltway. Do you think that one of the problems that we have here is the fact that because Donald Trump chose to run such a really inhumane campaign that he turned off a lot of people that might have been able to actually deliver on some of the stuff he promised because they just don't want to be associated with them? I mean, I think that's a good question. I mean, I also think a lot of it was that he just kind of was throwing out his own thoughts on the campaign trail and... um you know, as Zach said, it, it wasn't necess- didn't really turn into any kind of like real policy. It was just kind of his thoughts. And now he has to form an actual government. And the people who actually know the government are the people who live in this swamp and exist here and are lobbyists or, you know, they've worked for Wall Street. Uh, they know how these agencies work because they kind of either run them, uh, you know, they've run them in the past in a previous government or they run them basically in private through, you know, their contacts through the revolving right. door with government. Um, And so that I mean, I think it's really difficult to untangle these connections with government, no matter, you know, Obama ran on change, he ran, you know, that he was gonna be the one to like, and the special interest influence in Washington, you know, Trump's gonna drain the swamp, but then, you know, they get here and they're like, well, we need somebody who knows what the hell is going on. And, you know, that is an argument that they have, it might not be valid. But, uh, you know, the government is a gigantic. Yeah, I mean, uh, but he's sort of like his campaign was sort of run. like, you think of the people who support me as inexperienced. I'm going to show you they're brilliant and that the people who claim to be experienced have been fucking shit up all along and have been like agreeing to terrible deals. And I'm going to show people how it's done. But I don't see that emerging in this cabinet. Well, I mean, I, I you know, it, it reflects a broader problem with the campaign finance system fundamentally. I mean, you know, as Paul's saying, you really can't run a government without lobbyists at this point. You're not going to change it with with just straight up staffing person staffing decisions. But that said, you know, if there is a movement within the Democratic Party, at least that I mean, Elizabeth Warren was clearly gearing up to to have a lot of fights yeah. over personnel with Hillary Clinton over who was what what people's backgrounds were. She wanted more more academics, more people with labor backgrounds. Uh, there was going to be a big a big showdown over this stuff. And what you're seeing with Trump. Instead of there being a fight between this, this sort of like populist rhetoric he used on the campaign trail and the Wall Street wing of the Republican Party that's been running it for you know the last fifty years, you just see him totally going to the Wall Street wing. Um, and there's there's doesn't seem to be any sort of any sort of conflict so far between uh, the, the Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus uh, sort of you know devils and angels on his shoulder. Yeah, you know, I you t- you talk about how <clears throat> the, the the sort of central term of Trump's reelection will. Will he be delivered for working class people? You know, I leaving partisan blinders off. I want good outcomes. I'm not going to deny the man his accolades if he pulls it off, but he's given me no reason 
to think that anything he's his actions belie the fact that I don't think he knows what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of theatrical populism, which I think is what we saw on the campaign. Yeah. You know, like uh, it it looks great on TV, and people love this. Also, I mean, you have to understand, you know, like Ronald Reagan was great at theatrical populism, also. Um, taking on, you know, the unions that people might be mad about for making their planes late or not take off. Um, this is the kind of stuff that people actually do like, even if it, like, delivers negative benefits for them. I mean, that's what we're seeing with this carrier deal, which will be probably be very popular. But it saves, you know, a thousand jobs, and uh, it's going to cost taxpayers money through tax breaks, and God knows what other kind of things go on with uh, government contracts to the you know, the defense company that whole that owns yeah. carrier. We're going to talk to, talk about that in some more detail later. But I mean, I think that that is a great example of, you know, stuff that looks good on TV. Uh, that's so far. That's the policy we've got. We've, we've got we've got essentially, you know, 30 seconds for a for a CNN bit. Yeah, it's going to be. And I think I think your comparison to Reagan is really interesting because Reagan was able to do all of these right wing experiments, essentially, with economic policy while making people who he was really screwing over with those policies feel very enthusiastic about his candidacy and his presidency. Yep. Uh, we have really good shows to so stick around. We'll be right back. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Zach. Uh, and we'll be back shortly. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And we are back. So during the 2016 campaign, President-elect Donald Trump made a lot of elaborate promises to the working class that he would protect them and restore their wealth and specifically bring back a lot of lost jobs that have gone by the wayside in this age of trade agreements and globalization. Well, this week we have some tentative good news. According to the news, uh, Donald Trump and Indiana Governor Mike Pence have negotiated some sort of deal with Carrier, the manufacturer of many fine air conditioning units, to allow them to keep 1,000 jobs in Indiana as opposed to going to Mexico. Now, partisan blinders off when we're talking about the lives of ordinary people. Saving 1,000 manufacturing jobs is an unalloyed good thing. The contours of this deal, however, we do not know. And we also don't know if this is really the bold, brash Donald Trump who threatened to take on these companies or a bog standard Republican version of Don Donald Trump 
who's merely going to be offering inducements to companies on bended knee. Here to discuss this is Arthur Delaney. Hello. And we have a very, we're very fortunate to have a special guest. We have Scott Paul. He is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Scott, welcome. Great to be here. First time on the show. First time listener. So, First time <laughs> participant. There you go. So, you know, if if Donald Trump was is is going to turn every PR stunt into something that comes coupled with saving 1000 manufacturing jobs in America, I'd take that 7 days a week twice on Sunday. What do you, what do you, what is your take on this what's going on with Carrier? Yeah, I was going to say I liked his angry Carrier tweets a lot better than well, any of his other tweets uh by by, by far and and he he caught on this in February really early uh after the video of the plant closing announcement went viral right he, he mentioned it at a at a uh, at a candidate's forum and uh and then he he went off and he said and he said I know it's not presidential but I you know I I want to call the company up uh, and, and say something. He said this back in February and then kept it as a theme throughout the campaign. Important to note, Bernie Sanders did the same thing. I yeah. mean, Bernie Sanders did a rally there. And so the, the, the populist, the economic populist latched onto this. It is obviously symbolic. You know, manufacturing is a large sector. There are 12 million manufacturing jobs in America. We've lost 5.5 million manufacturing jobs since 2000. So this is a thousand jobs, but it is. Uh, I think it is important because it shows that that economic pain that was felt in the heartland that I think caught a, a lot of political analysts by surprise uh, does have a voice, and that at least there is there are some initial steps towards addressing. Uh, some of the causes of this and producing uh, some results on behalf of voters, as we know, who are saying, I'm going to vote against him if he doesn't deliver on his promise to keep our jobs here. So off to somewhat of a good start. So he made this an example of everything that's wrong with American economic policy, because we have a trade policy that makes it profitable for a company to fire its workers and hire workers in a low wage country like Mexico. But he didn't hike tariffs to make this happen. This was a deal with the company that was produced partly by a lot of badgering of the company by Trump himself. I wonder if you think that that's a viable strategy for the next four to eight years if your goal is to really reinvigorate American manufacturing. Yeah, well, I mean, there are plant closings like this that occur on a weekly basis. So unless he's going to set aside a couple hours a week to to focus on some of this, it's obviously not a sustainable strategy um, to, to do this. The things I think would be important, and this is a conversation that, that has already occurred post-election, is, is there space that the industrial state Democrats uh, can find with Trump on trade policy reform, which seems to be some sort of a, a commonality, uh, and and actually believing in the idea that manufacturing can be part of the future for many places in America and having policies to follow 
on that. You know, one thing that Bernie Sanders mentioned, and I have no idea in private if this has come up with the, in the conversations with the, the carrier folks, is that, you know, their parent company has a boatload of defense contracts. That's right. And so yeah. there's serious leverage in this case uh, beyond tariffs uh, th- that applies. And, and a lot of these large corporations do have government contracts. And look, I will say, you, you want to call it industrial policy, picking winners and looters. I'm I'm perfectly fine wielding the power of the federal purse to try to keep jobs in the United States if it's in our our general economic interest as well. One thing I'll say is just to follow on with what Arthur was talking about was that Donald Trump, when he talked about the way in which we've lost these jobs over the course of the year, he presented it as a case in which just bad and stupid politicians made bad deals. And he offered a different vision, a vision in which he would tell companies who wanted to locate overseas, cool, see you later. When your products come back in the United States, we're going to extract a shit ton of wealth from, from, from the deal. So that's, you know, this is really kind of like in a, in a metaphorical way, this really is the wall that he wanted to build to prevent and get someone else to pay for. This firewall uh, is sort of like a sort of tax and tariff uh, strong arm policy. But this this carrier deal, and we don't know the full contours of it, but it's not, it's looking more like you go on bended knee, you wield a little leverage, but you do a lot of wheedling and you get kind of like part of a deal. It kind of looks like the dumb deals that he was talking about everyone who'd come before well, him made and were stupid. And to be clear, the deal does amount to about half of the total jobs the company had planned to outsource to Mexico. Right. They're still going yeah, so to send some jobs. Yeah, so it's not it's not a holistic solution. Uh, it's not going to make every worker whole. It's not going to make every plant closing, you know, potential uh, possibility disappear. Uh, and the question we don't know yet, or the answer that we don't know yet, is that is this symbolism, or is is this going to be backed up by policy? Right. Um, and what is that policy going to be look look like? Is it the Republican kind of deregulation, uh, strip workers of their rights, uh, that kind of road towards competitiveness? Or is it investment? Is it investing in workers, investing in infrastructure, changing the trade policy so that there's more labor and environmental protections, dealing with some of these currency issues that both labor and businesses have talked about domestically, uh, and and taking on the Republican leadership to do that? Because Paul Ryan, uh, Mitch McConnell don't want to do any of that stuff. They don't want to do any of it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this this plays out. Um, But it's, you know, Carrier is also unique because it they those workers had a voice. They had the steel workers right, that yeah. gave them yeah. a voice. Most of manufacturing is non-union. Those workers don't have that voice. They had a viral video. They had a presidential primary happening. And so I think it's going to be hard to elevate any other plant to that level. I mean, the last thing I could think of and in all the conversations with Arthur uh, that we had about this was, you know, Obama's auto rescue, which which is which was industry wide. And it's, uh, you know, the scale of it is enormous compared to what Trump has done here. And to to your point, there's a company in Indianapolis called Rexnord doing exactly what Carrier is doing that Trump has never mentioned and has been omitted from the deal he struck with Carrier. Same union representing workers at both plants. So it's clearly not. A holistic solution. Now, a lot of people are looking at what Trump has just done and said, wow, why didn't Obama 
do something like that. I mean, I know he's got the auto rescue, but he also in every state of the union, I think, said the rules have changed. And if you've got a high school education, you can't go to the plant that your father worked at and get a job there anymore. And interviewing workers at these plants, Carrier and Rexnor, that's what they all did, as far as I can tell. So Trump is saying, actually, I am going to let you go to your dad's plant and get a job there. Uh, how, how does this reflect on the way Obama's talked about workers during his presidency and what he's done for them? Yeah, well, I, you know, there are some aspects of the Obama approach that I have liked. I like the auto rescue. I, I, you know, he had a focus on manufacturing very specifically in the 2012 campaign as well. Uh, but on trade policy, you know, I, I think that a lot of workers feel like he sold them out. He didn't crack down on China like he said he was going to do. I think a lot of workers were disappointed in that. And it's hard as a president to, I mean, and he was often accused of picking winners and losers. I mean, I, mean, I remember the, auto, right. you know, both the auto rescue and the, the stimulus bill. Right. Here and we so, are being pro yeah. picking winners yeah. and losers. So right. it would have been under Obama, it would have been socialism. How, how dare he go in right. and try to intervene like this? And now it's toughness. Yeah. yeah, and now, yeah. And now it's, now it's cast as toughness. So there's clearly a different standard here. Um, but I think what matters at the end of all of this is what does that level playing field look like and what's the policy to back it on? Because there's not going to be, uh, you know, Trump's not going to be calling up uh, a CEO every day and, tr- and trying to create a deal. Well, now, like picking winners and losers was about companies being favored by the government. Like but, Solyndra. Yeah, and that's, a, you know, a, a larger Famous. complaint about so-called crony capitalism that a lot of smart conservatives think is very pernicious. But is this crony capitalism? I mean, Donald Trump picked on this company. I don't think you're going to be able to call it crony capitalism unless the deals are being wrought by the president of Carrier and Donald Trump versus the workers of Carrier and Donald Trump, right? Right. And, and you know, if it, you know, if you see, you know, United Technologies get more defense contracts down the road. Then you know. You, then, then you, I mean, there, there are going to be signals for this. But, you know, most of this assistance that's provided is on the state level. Uh, and that's not going to change. And deals like what we saw with Carrier, honest to God, they happen every day around the country uh, with, with governors and companies trying to come to some agreement to keep the jobs there. It's just that this was so elevated in stature because of the politics and the, and the symbolism uh, and, and the timing, yeah. I think. <clears throat> well, um, one thing I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll leave on is that you're right. The thing that really helped Carrier out was the fact that they – Managed to get a lot of attention in the media, and I think if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're a liberal right now and you feel uncomfortable giving Donald Trump credit, remember that the credit really belongs with the workers who found an opportunity to exercise political power and media power and did so. And so, get in the game, people. Help other workers uh, manifest that same kind of political power, and uh, you'll get good outcomes even during a Trump presidency. Yeah, to be to be specific, this was a, a video in which the workers humiliated their boss yep. as he tried to tell them they would all be fired in favor of Mexican workers. Yep. Yeah, and a unionized workforce that had a powerful voice, the steel workers, standing up for them as well. And so eroding the bargaining power of workers means actually that you will see less opportunities like this, not more. Yeah, these a lot of these guys have been talking to the media all year and you ask them, "Why are you talking to the media?" and they say, "Well, I'm in a union. They <laughs> can I'm really safe from being fired in retaliation for media comments." Yeah. 
All right, well, keep helping to elevate people. And of course, if you're out there and you want to talk about your life as a manufacturer or, or, or the job losses you're, you're experiencing or anything about the nature of your work and your life, feel free to send us an email. So that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We'd love to chat. Uh, Scott, thanks for being with us today. Really appreciate you coming in. I hope you come back. Yeah, look forward to it. It was awesome. All I, hope, right. I hope there's more good news down the road. We all hope so. We all hope so. Good outcomes are good outcomes. All right. Thanks. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. And we are back. Uh, We're very happy uh, because Zach Carter is here. Yep. And uh, as I was introduced in the first segment. Right. But you're still here. And I'm still happy. So that counts. It's um, great. And, it's and, so good to still be back. And we're also very, very delighted to uh, welcome Emma Roller, late of the New York Times, uh, back to... Thank you. Please clap. Please don't <laughs> clap, actually. Uh, the people should applaud you. You're no. worthy of applause. No. Um, so I wanted to sort of like talk, you know, we have uh, still sort of like living this sort of election hangover, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think that the election has done, uh, and I think it's weird to consider the fact that we went through an election where one of the candidates actually sort of posed an existential threat to the First Amendment such that it really, I think, put some fear in a lot of people in the media, maybe even some people who don't normally possess that fear who are usually happy to take sort of that neutral tone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now we're sort of like, I guess, questioning whether or not what the election proved was that we don't have the ability to actually... uh, tell the truth about someone who lies a lot and then allow those truths to compete fairly in a marketplace filled with other lies. I mean, it's pretty dark stuff, really. Right. I mean, I I think if if you were a journalist and you were not disheartened by the results of the election, just given the sheer mountain of lies that Donald Trump built his campaign on— then you're probably not a very honest journalist. I mean, <laughs> Mark Halperin is probably, you know, fine. And I, I had a bet going as to when we'd first slag Mark Halperin. I'm glad we got that over the way early. Yeah, oh, I yeah, mean, I'm, I'm there already. Sure, sure. I mean, Mark, Mark, who is a very telegenic person, uh, is really just sort of an audience member to stuff that's going on in America. He's not really participating in it, and so he doesn't have any real feel for it, and he doesn't have any kind of like real emotional attachment to the country or the people who live in it. Right, and and that's notions kind of patriotism, of, that kind of thing. That's kind of what this election has laid bare: is that it's kind of crazy that this media, our media industry, expects journalists to be so um, tied into their beat and and so well informed and well sourced, but than to be completely dispassionate about it and like, oh, well, I'm not going to choose sides. I just absorb all of this information constantly every day and write about it and, you know, care about it more than my children. But I don't have any opinions on it. And I think this is sort of laid bare, like 
the hollowness of that. It's in, we're human beings, and it's impossible to be a news robot. And I guess Mark Halperin comes close, and you know, I wouldn't say that his journalism is all the more valuable for it. I mean, I think I've always objected to this idea that there that there is something there's an objective neutral space in which journalists can operate. I mean, I just don't think philosophically that that is that exists or is real. You know, I totally agree. When you talk about like the view from nowhere, there are philosophers who talk about this and it's basically a substitute for philosophers who don't believe in God to be like, okay, well, if you want to be objective, you should do what God does. I don't think that is really a reasonable expectation for people who are writing. I do think you can be open and clear about your um, your sourcing. Yes. You can be transparent about 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 issues. About conflicts and, of interest. Right. Things, things like that. Um, and, and I think uh, there are <laughs> there's there is something really troubling about the fact that so many people don't trust the media in the United States. And as a result, are turning to someone who I mean, that, that there, there are really good reasons to be critical of American media. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. The Donald Trump campaign really exploited that during his during his campaign mm-hmm. uh, by saying, don't trust anybody who ever tells the truth. Only believe my lies. Um, anybody who contradicts my my lies is is not telling the truth. And so I think the, the fact that that we pretended to be objective for a really long time, uh, often sometimes getting things wrong or just being too embedded in. And frankly, this, this sort of like professional class political. Right. World. And, and chasing access at all costs. Um and trying to sort of ingratiate yourself with people in positions of power, um, which is kind of a vicious cycle of, oh, I don't want, you know, I want to report, but I don't want to like piss off this spokesman too right. much, or I won't Source be able management. to, mm-hmm. I won't be able to get a, you know, a scoop from him in the future. But that I think becomes really dangerous at a certain point when the you're not on a level playing field, and and the people you're work quote unquote working with as as reporters, your sources you know, don't want you to do your job actively. And that's been true forever. That's like P- PR Flack's job is to prevent reporters from doing right. their jobs. Right, right. And and I mean, I think more more broadly, though, there is like a cultural gap that opens up between, I mean, particularly with the, the, the sort of centralization and concentration of media in essentially New York, Washington, and San Francisco right. that has happened over the last, you know, 20 or so years as the media has become a very difficult place to succeed financially. Um, you do actually have a cultural isolation of, of media yeah. members. And when, when Trump people are like, I hate the mainstream media, they're not like me, they look down on me. I mean, I think some of that is actually true. Yeah. I don't think the, the appropriate response is to nominate strong men who want to destroy the media, who, who literally manhandle reporters at their, at their, uh, their, their press rallies. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I, four years ago, I went on a reporting trip with Jason Cherkis here, and we were at the Democratic convention, and we just needed a break from the bubbles of conventions. And so we went out into the red counties right outside Charlotte to talk to people about the election. And it was interesting what we found, and it's, and it's interesting that I sort of like kind of missed a chance to articulate something that was happening in the country based on the reporting I'd done. But we went out to these red counties, and it, four years ago, we were, we we detected, you know— General antipathy for Obama and Democrats, but not a lot of love for Romney or Republicans, more like resignation. And most of the people we talked to, I mean, there were a few dicks that we met that we were pleased to see the back of. But most of the people we talked to were actually really wonderful people who actually were just sort of puzzled that reporters ever came out, had bothered to come out and talk to them. Mm -hmm. And they described a life in which like major institutions that 
are present in the lives of people who live in coastal enclaves just don't communicate with them at all. They talked about politicians not coming out to talk to them. They talked about the media ignoring them. And they we were really kind of facing a situation where we were talking to people who were kind of marooned on an island inside a country Mm -hmm. uh, and and just showing their own resilience and solving their own problems. Um, But curious as to why and angry as to why uh, people had like essentially decided to not take an interest in their lives anymore and leave them to fend for themselves. And I have to say that, like, looking back, all the people I met and I met mostly very nice people. I mean, people that you would be really pleased to know. They're fun and they told great jokes and they were friendly and kind and wonderful and, and like much more sophisticated than people give mm-hmm. uh, people in, in rural parts of America credit for. Uh, I'm sure they all voted for Trump. I'm dead sure they all voted for Trump. And I'm dead sure they voted for Trump, not because they were racist and not because they were evil, but because it was represented an opportunity to them to do something, anything to break through the stagnation of mm-hmm. communication that's been going on between big elite institutions and people who live in a sense adrift from them. That's a really great point. Um, and I think that can tie back to I think that, you know, quote unquote, objectivity in journalism actually worsens the erosion of trust between members of the media and the public because it it's like a game or it politics gets covered like a game on cable TV mm-hmm. without any real stakes that affect people it's all you know well who's Trump going to choose as his you know this cabinet pick without actually talking about the ramifications of well this is you know what's going to happen to public schools with Betsy DeVos as education right. secretary <laughs> right. um But you're right. And it's easy for us as journalists to sit here in a studio in Washington, D.C. and sort of be like, you know, tear our hair out and say, oh, why? Woe is me. People just don't care about the truth anymore. But, um, you know, the truth is that we have, you know, isolated ourselves. And and some of that is, you know, I think due to the instability of of media in the Internet Mm -hmm. age. but I, I think that means it's more important than ever to go out into communities and communities that voted for Trump and communities that voted for Clinton and and somehow I, communicate that we do care about the stakes. We do. Yeah. And I, I think this reflects a, a broader problem. And I mean, people talk about the liberal media a lot, but I do think this reflects a broader problem with the Democratic Party as well, because the Republican Party hasn't really tried to pretend that it's not, you know, gunning for the, for the you know, trying to do things for the rich people, right? They Their tax policy is slated in favor of the rich. The deregulatory, deregulatory policy is slated in favor of the rich. That's the whole idea. And people, when you talk to people in rural communities, they, they're not dumb. They, they see that, right? They, they know that. The Democratic Party pretends to be the party of the little guy. And I think this election cycle, what you noticed was that, like, a lot of the little guys didn't believe them and didn't show up. I mean, yeah. the, the black and brown working class basically didn't come out to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, and then the Democratic Party, frankly, spent an awful lot of this election saying that the white working class is a morally corrupted, you know, underbelly of Basket America. Of deplorables. Yeah, that, that, that needs to be exiled from from polite society. And, you know, the Democratic Party 
didn't do that in 2008 when we when when you know Democratic elites saw a lot of black voters voting for for Barack Obama. They didn't say, well, okay, well, everybody who goes to a black church that's opposed to same sex marriage, those people cannot be part of our coalition. Yeah. Right. They didn't say when when Latinos started coming in into the party, they didn't say, well, a lot of you guys are su- are super right. Catholic and opposed to abortion. You can't be part of this club. Um, this year, they decided that an enormous part of the country just wasn't worthy of of the party's attention and, and was <laughs> yeah. morally morally inferior to it. And I think people are a little more complicated than that. You know, there 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 is a white nationalist movement that is behind Donald Trump. He has whipped that up. It, it was it already existed. It is it is there. It's real and it's very bad. Um, but if you don't want those people to win, you've got to find a way to communicate with people who and get people who aren't just r- rabid white nationalists to vote for you instead. Yeah. And, and they wrote it off. I think it's kind of ironic that you know. Barack Obama did a much better job in 2012 of of reaching that segment than Hillary Clinton did, and now you know yeah, who's he they're being to written he, off as white na- all white nationalists. Who like is he said. talking to when he was talking about the auto bailout and the campaign trail in 2012? Yeah. Who, who's he talking and, to? And that yeah, and his message against Romney of you know his economic message was so effective, and Hillary Clinton's campaign utterly failed, in my opinion, to you know communicate that same message and to frame Donald Trump not just as this hateful racist, xenophobic guy, but as a bully who picks on the little guys uh, as his whole business model. I want to bring up one more thing before we go. And uh, I'm sorry if this segment's running a bit long, but um, there's been actually a lot of talk after the fact uh, of this election about fake news and how it sort of was a predatory force on the media's intentions. And I feel like we've been we've been talking about it talking about it. And I think that we've kind of like danced around the real problem with fake news. When when we talk about like the way fake news propagated itself, we talk we're talking about uh, news content, false content that propagated itself on social media platforms, probably most notably Facebook. And I feel like what the what people in the media need to maybe understand is that they kind of sped their own collapse in that regard. Because we all ran to Facebook and their platform chasing dollars and eyeballs. And if you want to know how fake news became so legitimate, it's because all of us lent it. We legitimized our prestige. (laughs) We, 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 we provided the platform on which it propagated with an enormous amount of prestige. And then it caught us in the ass. And I feel like we maybe have to make, and, and you know, the primary problem I believe with the fake news situation are simply the media industry is facing financial difficulties. I feel, feel that's the the er nut of the problem yes. here. But I think that despite that, I think that we have to take a serious look at perhaps consciously uncoupling from failed states like Facebook and to take back our own platforms because we have been the beggars to our own demise, mm-hmm. I think. That that overlaps a lot of other issues with Facebook and and major Silicon Valley companies as well that are you know these institutions control access to information in a lot of ways and don't and pretend that they're not stewards of people's uh, of information. Google and Facebook in particular have an enormous amount of control and there's a serious antitrust problem there that I was hoping the Hillary Clinton administration was going to take a hard look at. I do not expect Donald Trump to take a hard look at anything other than Amazon because he hates the Washington Post. Right, because of the <laughs> because of ven- vindictiveness and vengeance. Bezos. And maybe to end on a positive note and speaking a somewhat positive note and speaking of Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post, um, I just wanted to read a little bit from um, Marty Barron, the pub- the Washington Post editor of Spotlight fame. Um, accepted an award earlier this week and sort of wrestled with the question of, um, you know, where the press goes from here. 
And so I'm just going to read a little bit of that. Um, He said, many journalists wonder with considerable weariness what it is going to be like for us during the next four, perhaps eight years. Will we be incessantly harassed and vilified? Will the new administration seize on opportunities to try intimidating us? Will we face obstruction at every turn? If so, what do we do? The answer, I believe, is pretty simple. Just do our job. Do it as it's supposed to be done. Yeah, I mean, there's really, I feel like, I feel like part of what is kind of like driving us crazy is the fact that we we feel like we have to maybe start at square one again. But I think there's something positive to be said about that. It sucks. We don't we, we don't get to borrow back on the the past legacy of our work. But you know, if we're not going to have access, if we're going to be obstructed, embrace it and fight it. <laughs> You know, it's fun to not have access. I haven't had access to shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, my advice to fellow journalists, the best advice someone gave to me, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, is Rosie Gray at BuzzFeed, um, you know, in the very early stages of this campaign, I I got drinks with her and I wanted to, you know, pick her brain about covering the Clinton campaign. And she said, you know, there's two ways to do this. You can either try to cover it from inside um, and get sources and get sourced up, which is very difficult. Or you can just, you know, hammer at the edifice from the outside. And and that was kind of a light um, light bulb moment for me. Like, yeah, like, what's what's the point? What, you know. Right. What are they going to give you that's so great? Exactly. <laughs> if you write a really nice so story my, about my, them. So my advice to fellow reporters, if any of you are listening to this, is just don't be afraid of shunning access and just, yeah. you know, railing at Tilting at windmills. You're really not missing anything by getting phone calls from Brian Fallon every day. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, that's uh, on that note, we will we will conclude our discussion of the media and what it's been doing and what it will do in the future. Emma, we're so happy to have you. Thank you. And we look forward to having you back. Yeah, it sounds um, great. Emma is a former columnist of the New York Times. Her contract ended. You should hire her. Speaking of the future of the media, I am in the market for a job. Yes. (laughs) She's really good. Hire her. Go get her. Okay. Get it. Get it. There's a race. Win it. (laughs) All right. Uh, We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by journalist and writer Emma Roller, Alliance for American Manufacturing President Scott Paul, as well as Huffington Post reporters Mark Blumenthal, Zach Carter, and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening and best of luck.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.